0: I'd like for you to turn to the 31st Psalm tonight, and uh, throughout the summer I've been uh, doing a series on growth in these pl- places that are a kind of unusual. I have found a common malady among us all, and that is that we, we tend to get sidetracked when we run up against, we bump up against these uh, little uh, barriers that exist in, in the daily life. And we need a new interpretation of God during these times. We need to hear from Him in a special way. For example, um, in the times when we're uh, called on just to wait, nothing's happening. and we're, We feel like God's kind of put us on hold. What do you do during those times? Is there, a, is there something to learn from God during them? We talked about these the times when we fail, times of failure. Nobody likes to, to fail or to admit it. Uh, times when we are misunderstood, when you uh, really even sometimes in an innocent way reach out to people and you're misunderstood. Tonight, I want us to talk about uh, growing in the times when we make mistakes. Now, this is a sermon for those people who are prone... to to make mistakes, or or, or those who have made mistakes. And if you're perfect, this probably will not relate to you. But there are some of us who have had to say as we have eaten crow, I blew it again. Harry Truman once said, when I make a mistake, I usually save them up and really make a butte. Well, I'm guilty of the same kind of thing. When I make a mistake, it's usually a butte. Now, I'm not talking about, uh, you know, uh, rebellion against God. I'm not talking about moral failure, moral mistakes. I'm talking about those, you know, common, ordinary garden variety mistakes that we make. Webster defines mistake like this, to choose wrongly or a wrong judgment, and then he amplifies it a little bit. He says, a wrong attitude, action, or statement proceeding from faulty judgment, inadequate knowledge, or inattention. Wrong attitude, action, or statement proceeding from faulty judgment, inadequate knowledge, or inattention. I believe the biggest, the best mistake I've ever heard about was made in a in a in a Baptist bulletin one morning, and something was wrong with the typewriter uh, when when this secretary uh, made the little announcement, and, and and the and the G was left out, the G, the little letter G, and so the announcement read, "There will be a sin in following the service tonight." The pastors message will be on intimate fellowship, there'll be a sin in, <laughs> that is a butte, and that's something like I make. What I tried to do this week was to think about the categories of our mistakes, and I want to list these categories, five of them as I see them, and I want us to see how we make, the, how we make mistakes, and how these mistakes are made, what causes them, and what is caused by them. And I want to, you know, I want to give a biblical illustration for each one of them because I want to make this as close to the Bible as I can get it, you know. And and, and in these categories, where we make mistakes, how we make them, why we make them, and what happens when we do. First of all, there are those mistakes that I call panic-prompted mistakes. Panic-prompted mistakes. The mistakes we make out of fear or we're in a hurry, or we, we are worried, and so we make choices and we make mistakes. We, we, we make judgments on the basis of fear. And one day we, we look back on our life and we see these choices we made or these uh, judgments that we uh, uh, made, and, and, and we said, How in the world could I have done that? And it was because we panicked. Panic-prompted mistakes or... Mistakes of judgment that are made at times of fear or worry. Now there is an illustration of it in the Bible. Now just hold your place here in Psalm 31. We're going to get here in just a minute. But I want you to look back to the illustration. It's Genesis chapter 12. The first book in the Bible, verse 10. Chapter 12, verse 10. And I'll read it to you if you'll find it right quick. Now you'll understand that this mistake was made by a man who was... uh, more well known than you I, his name was Abraham. And he had all these promises. This man had all of God's promises. God had promised him that out of his loins would come the, the seed of the nation, his people. And he had promised him that he, his nation, his people, would be as plentiful as the stars in the sky and the sand in the sea. This man had God's promise. But a famine came. And verse 10 of chapter 12 says, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Now why did he, he took off down to Egypt, why? Because he panicked. And he was frightened. And there was this, um, you know, worry that's common with all of us. You know, how am I going to make a living? And even though he had the promises of God, in the moment of panic he went down to Egypt. And when he got to Egypt, as the result of this choice, he made another mistake. It's found in verse 11. And it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you're a beautiful woman. And it will come about when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife and they'll kill me. But they will will let you live. Please say that you're my sister so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. It's kind of like a domino effect. Now when you make a mistake out of fear, when you move into Panic Palace, and you make a mistake as a result of fear, it starts the domino effect, and there's another, and there's another. Abraham is not going to live on account of Sarah. He's going to live on account of God. But he doesn't know that. In this moment, his decision, his judgment, is based on fear and panic. Second category, it's what I call good intention mistakes. Now these are mistakes uh, that are made with absolute pure motives. There's something that we do or say that, that is ill-timed or, you know, it, it, it's the result, we, we, we do it with the wrong in the wrong way, the wrong method, ill-timed, wrong time, wrong way, but we have the purest motives and the best intentions. There's a biblical illustration. It's found in the second book of the Bible, and that's Exodus chapter 2. So I want you to turn quickly to that. Exodus 2. And the verse is 11. Now, this is the, a mistake that a man more know, better known than you or I, by the name of Moses, made. Now, Moses has lived 40 years in Pharaoh's palace, but he has Jewish blood flowing through his veins. He's really the son of God. And it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors, that is, on the Jews. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren, so he looked this way and that. And when he saw there's no one around. He struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Now, you know, of course, that that's murder. My point is that sometimes we make a mistake with the best motives. Now, he assumed that everybody understood that that he was going to be the man that God was going to use to deliver His people, and that what he was doing was really a part of God's plan for him. He had the purest motives, and he thought everybody would understand that. That's the second characteristic, I think, of Of mistakes that oftentimes we think that everybody's going to understand what we're doing and they don't if you'll turn sometime we won't have time to do it tonight but in the seventh chapter of the book of Acts verse 23 same subject from a different perspective the author of that passage says that that Moses thought that everybody would understand what he was doing and that this was a part of God's plan but they didn't good intention mistakes there are some of us who make mistakes that are actually, absolutely, you know, from the best best motives. Third, there are mistakes in what I call the passive negligence mistakes, and I and I think primarily I'm thinking tonight as it relates to the home, or as it relates to the fathers and their responsibility in the home. And these passive negligent mistakes are the result of our laziness and our lack of discipline and our failure to assume the responsibility that every Christian father is to assume. Passive negligence mistakes. And one illustration of it is 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5. So if you'll turn to 1 Kings, it's an Old Testament book. We'll see an example. Strangely enough, These mistakes are made by people that are much more famous than you or I. My point is that everybody makes mistakes, you see. This man was named David. He made a terrible mistake as the result of passive negligence found in verse 5 of chapter 1. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggath, Hagath was the 18th wife of David, exalted himself saying, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. And his father David had never crossed him at any time by asking, why have you done so? And he was also a very handsome man, and he was born after Absalom. Now, here's the mistake he made the mistake of passive omission. He never crossed him, he never confronted his son concerning his lifestyle. The same thing is true of his son Amnon, who raped his daughter, Amnon's half sister. And the same thing is true of, is uh, uh, said about David concerning Absalom. He was a kind, even though he was a tremendous warrior king, he was a passive, neglectful father. And he did not assume his responsibility. And it's a trap that is so easy to fall into. Ben Franklin once said in his almanac, "...little neglect may bring mischief. For one of a nail the shoe is lost. For one of the shoe the horse is lost. For one of the horse the rider is lost." Little by little by little, we neglect and passive negligence—terrible mistake. Fourth category is the category I call unrestrained curiosity. And what I want to what I what I noticed in this Old Testament illustration that's found in First Samuel chapter twenty-eight is this unrestrained curiosity as it relates to the demonic or the sensational. And you look this passage up if you wish. 1 Samuel 28, verse 8. It's the story of Saul who disguised himself and went into a medium, a woman, a, a fortune teller, to see if he could kind of get some insight into, into life and his, his uh, activity as the king. For he was drawn there out of this unrestrained curiosity. We make so many mistakes for that reason. I wonder how that'll taste. Somebody was talking to me the other day, It was was an alcoholic, he said he'd been a sober alcoholic for 12 years. He said, I'm absolutely convinced that I was an alcoholic the first swallow I took. And I asked him, I said, what caused you, can you tell me why you took the first drink? He said, out of absolute curiosity, just to find out what it tasted like. I imagine there are a lot of people tonight who's Whose arms are shot up with drugs simply because of curiosity. Or some people are involved in in, in, in in sexual activity outside of marriage simply because of a desire to find out what that's like. Unrestrained curiosity. Tremendous mistakes we make on the basis of that. Fifth category, and then we'll get to we're going to get to Psalm thirty one. I spend all my, you know, I preach all my time on the introduction, but that's okay. First, the fifth, fifth category is what I call blind spots. And let me tell you, we make, there's where we make the mist- mistakes most often because of blind spots. The example is in the book of Acts chapter 15. It's the story of Paul and John Mark. You remember that story? John Mark was with them on this missionary journey, and he got homesick, and he left them in the middle of the journey, went back home, made Paul furious. So when they began their second missionary journey, Barnabas said, let's take Mark with us. He said, no, no way, an unforgiving spirit, and later on he admitted himself that he made a mistake. And if you want to study the life of the Apostle Paul and with a little you know, imagination, you'll find that that is a place where Paul had a blind spot. For when a person failed or made a mistake, he had very little to do with them after that. A blind spot. Now let's get a perspective from Psalm 31. Here we are. This psalm was written on a blue day in the life of, the, of, of David. Look how he begins it. In Thee, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. Let me say here parenthetically that there are some of us who grew up, you know, in a demanding kind of an environment and we had so many demands laid on us and, 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 and such a, we, we lived in an environment where we sought so desperately to please people who made demands on us. And the result of that, in, in the, in, you know, not knocking anybody, but the result of that is that, that we become per- perfectionistic by nature. And the result of a perfectionistic nature is that when you make a mistake, you're ashamed. The result of the, the mistake of a, of a person who feels he has to be perfect to be accepted, or to be good, or to be right, The emotion that results when one makes a mistake who is perfectionistic by nature is guilt. He feels guilty. He has been made to feel guilty by his, you know, all those that he has sought to, whose approval he has sought. And and so guilt is the natural result. It it, it just leaps out of this psalm. Let me never feel ashamed. Look look how it deals with verses 2 and 5. Incline thine ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Be thou to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save. Into thy hand I commit my spirit. Does that sound familiar? That's the very words of Jesus from the cross just before He gave up His life. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Let me say this. I want you to get this. That the only person who can give you... way you will ever get comfort is to commit that to Him. Now, that is the punchline to to the rest of this sermon, and, and, and 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 it's basic and fundamental to what I want to say, that everybody is prone to make mistakes, and the only way to be comforted when we do is to commit those mistakes to Him. Now, how does God view us? If you're following this This uh, outline, how does God view us? Verse 6 I hate those who trust, who, who regard vain idols but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in thy loving kindness because thou hast seen my affliction, thou hast known the troubles of my soul. How does God view us? Two ways. Watch this. He views us realistically. He views us realistically. He sees us as we really are. Now we're going to work hard at trying to cover up. I don't like for people to know that I make mistakes. Uh, Somebody's already reminded me of how, uh, how, how... difficult it is for me to accept anything less than perfection. And and I'm going to do my best to cover up my mistakes. And, And I don't know whether you have that tendency or not. Well, let me tell you something. God sees you just as you really are. doesn't help try to cover up. And He views us thoroughly. The word affliction refers to the external the, 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 the term troubles of my soul refers to the internal. It means that God knows you on the inside and He knows you on the outside. He knows you from head to foot. Psalm 139 says, Thou hast searched me. The word it means to dig. It's a, it's a geological term. It, it's the idea of the, the, uh, these uh, guys going out on these digs and they sift through those finds and they don't go out there with a backhoe machine. They go out there with a rubber bucket and a little bitty hand shovel and they just go an inch at a time sifting you know, the little hand shovel through a little fine sift and, and the psalmist says, you dig me, you have searched me inside and out. How does God view us? He knows what we're like. And there's no reason to cover up. So that when you go to God, you have nothing to hide. You can say, all right, I am... Oh, I've, I blew it. Well, how does He treat us? Verse 8. Thou hast not given me over into the hand of my enemy. Now watch this. He doesn't reject us. Doesn't, isn't that what we fear? Isn't that why we feel like we have to be perfect? Because if we're not, somebody will reject us. Isn't that right? This is yes, this is no. Isn't that right? No, aren't we afraid that if we're not, if we make a mistake, somebody will reject us? Oh, how terrible is the, is the thought of rejection. It's the hardest blow of all. And I'm convinced that at the heart of every movement, sociological movement in history is a reaction to being rejected, the civil rights movement included. How does He, how does he treat us? When we, when we make a mistake, He doesn't reject us. Secondly, He gives us space to make mistakes. He said, Thou hast set my feet in a large place. He gives us the freedom and the latitude not to be perfect. I love it. He gives you the freedom to fail, to make a mistake. I have to confess that I've kind of thought of God as this old man, you know, that's kind of narrow and and, uh, restrictive. And then I came to the story of the prodigal son and discovered what God is really like. He's like this father who gives the freedom to a young man to go out and make a mistake. I love that. How does He instruct us? Verse 14. I wish I had time to do it all, but you don't have time, neither do I. Verse 14. How does He instruct us? But as for me, I trust in Thee, O Lord. I say, Thou art my God. He, he instructs us in the context of trust and not suspicion. Now watch this. If you turn these situations of life over to man, even your best friend, he's going, to, uh, he's going to react to you on the basis of suspicion. Uh-huh. You'll do that again. You'll do that again. You let, a, you let a husband make a mistake in the wife. How difficult it is for that wife not to fear he'll make that mistake again. And, and, and that, that, that employer, that, that, that neighbor with his finger in your chest, uh-huh, I can't trust you anymore. You had an opportunity and you blew it. Not our Lord. He, he instructs us in the context of trust. And He says, okay, you, you blew it. But, but you, you, you better, I'm going to trust you. Secondly, verse 15. My times are in thy hand. Underline it. He instructs us in all of life, not just the good times. So that in our mistakes, we find some of the greatest teaching from God there is. My times are in your hands. Every moment I live, you have in your hands. Instruct me in that. Verse 19 and 20. How great is thy goodness, which thou hast stored up for those who fear thee which Thou hast wrought for those who take refuge in Thee before the sons of men. Thou dost hide them in the secret place of Thy presence from the conspiracies of man. Thou dost keep them secretly in a shelter from the strife of tongues. Third way instructs us. In the secret places and not in the public places. Aren't you glad God doesn't reprimand you in public? And you get in that secret place with God and He instructs you there with a still small voice, not with a not with an earthquake, not public, not with a mighty rushing wind, does He speak. But in those quiet places, he, he talks to you and instructs you. Marvelous, is it? Now, let's wind this up. Before we make a mistake, beforehand, let, let's get a formula, something we can do to help us not to, to blow it so much. A formula. Beforehand. Before the situation, as the situation arises, do these three things. Check your motive, the moment, the method. And you ask yourself these three questions. What is my motive here? Is this the right time to do this? Is this the right way to do this? You check the motive, you check the moment, you check the method. You ask why, when, and what. Before you, you know, before you blow it. After you blow it. (laughs) That's what most of us, afterward. You've blown it, you blew it. There's a formula for that. Think of three things. This will help you. I'm trying to help you with practical things. This will help. Three things you think. All right, I'm human. This proves it. I'm just a human. I am human. Secondly, I have learned. I have learned. God has taught me. I've had a lesson here. Third thing you think. I will recover. This is not the end. I'm going to get over this. This is going to pass. I will recover. It's not the end of the world. There's an application. You get this and we're through. Our greatest problem is not our mistakes, but our failure to learn from them. Our greatest problem is not the mistakes we make, but our failure to learn from them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you teach us out of your word and out of the experiences of life. Oh, how we've come to know that you have so much for us in all that happens to us. Most of all, we thank you that even though we are so prone to make mistakes, to blow it, you don't reject us that you love us the way we are. And you pick us up and move us on beyond this. To growth and maturity. And so we can say with James, we count it all joy when mistakes are made. Because out of them we are matured, perfected. Teach us thy way, O Lord. Show us thy path, we pray in Jesus' name. The end of every service, the end of every sermon, we have an invitation. The reading of the gospel message, demands decision and choice, an opportunity for people to respond publicly to the Lord. It's like inviting you to the to life's most important choice and decision. There are three invitations an invitation to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. To follow Him in baptism as we have seen tonight in a beautiful way. To make your stand and declare your faith in Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. There may be some of you who have never done that or you may be a member of a church but you've never really trusted Jesus for your salvation. You've never rested on Him, your sin, your eternal destiny. We invite you to do that. Jesus died on the cross. He might take your sin. You might want to come tonight to join the church, as some did today in this early service, or, or you might want to come to, place, to make a new commitment of your life to Jesus Christ and place your life more completely in the center of His will. We'll have two verses, two stanzas of a song. Mark will lead us, and we'll be through. You stand. With me, you come. God leads you.